Hello, Liturgy Guide listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you this week. Oh. Hello, J- Jesse. This is DMAC. <laughs> oh, I thought it was Mr. That's Ed. T- no, no. <laughs> I was just doing your hello, oh, Liturgy Guide listeners. Know, Guess know. what, Jesse? What? Guess what? Can you hear this? Yeah, what is that? This is a letter in my hot is hand. Is it a limerick? Here. It's not a limerick. No. Oh. Send in your limericks. Yes, yeah, send your limerick. Last in. week, Friday. No, it's... Uh, this is the last yeah, week. Yeah, right. But... Someone from California sent not just pie crust, but special pie crust treats. What? Yeah. Peter B. from Chula Vista, California, said he was... PB. Nice. He was traveling from a trip through California, and he stopped at this place, and I forget what it's called now, but um, they make, like, cookies out of leftover pie crust. Oh, my goodness. And there was a bag of them, and he sent them to us in the mail, and they came here perfect, and they were delish. So, Peter B. from Chula Vista... Thanks for the pie crust. Would you think? Would you say that they're like soups delish? They were soups delish, and you know what? The bag they came in had a little story. The lady who started the bakery. It could have been my life story. It should have been my life story. She said, "When I was a girl, I could have been a contender." When I was a girl, well, I was never a girl, but when she was a girl, she used to take the leftover pie crust when her mom was baking pies and make stuff out of them. Now she turned it into a business. So, oh my goodness, how awesome is that? How apropos! Oh, yes. hey, while you're here, yes, what is? Uh, we have a conference coming up for deacons. I think we have a, a few deacons that listen to the podcast. Well, it's priests and deacons. It's well, a priest and yes, yeah, so workshop priest. for priests and deacons called Profound. Preaching. Oh, that sounds profound. There's a Dominican friar from Washington, D.C. His name is Father Aquinas Guilbault. Sounds very Frenchy, but he's American. He, in fact, he was just elected the prior of the Dominican House of Studies. And he was a diocesan priest before he joined the Dominicans, which are also known as OPs. You know what that stands for? Order of Preachers. Order of Preachers. So this is a guy who knows preaching. He also understands what it's like to be a diocesan priest, work in a parish. So he'll be talking about something he called wisdom from the cloister, meaning what are all the things that contemplatives get to think about that maybe busy priests and deacons don't get a chance, and he'll be doing that workshop on preaching. And what day is it? Friday, November 10th. And you can come. We have uh, rooms for you to stay in, so you can stay overnight on uh, Thursday and then stay for the conference if you need to stay on Friday night. You can do that as well, but uh, really well attended by priests and deacons and a great way to... uh, build your chops in preaching. How do people register for this? They can go to liturgicalinstitute.org and go to our conferences and register there. Man, I wish I were a priest or a deacon. Okay, then and then I'll, I could go to this thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you you will be there for a little bit, right? Yeah, I'll say hello. Uh, also, we should talk about what we're talking about this podcast episode. Oh, is, this, is there a podcast coming <laughs> yeah, after this? Right. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the fun stuff, but then we got to get to the to the work we got to get to the work. So we're talking about the um, what Magnum Principium. Principium? What is it? Yes, Magnum Principium. Principium. Yeah. From Principium. Pope Francis, a recent motu proprio that caused a stir of about five minutes. But nonetheless, <laughs> it is worth talking about what did he actually do. So, all of that and more on this episode. Episode 10 of Season 2 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Oh, man, you. 
<laughs> I don't know that one. Et admirabile motu proprio. Domo arigato manum prochpium. Domo domo. Domo domo. Hello, motu. We have another motu. Duta duta solo. Motu proprio solo. C-P-3-P-O. First, what's a motu proprio, Chris? That is a good question. Take it away, Dennis. It is, after consultation and so on, an insertion on the Pope's own authority into canon law. Um, Maybe. maybe, Strictly, it means on his own authority. He's making some... It doesn't necessarily have to be a, ch- a change in uh, Oh, it doesn't have to be law, ca- law right? It's right? just something so, he's doing. So but normally what's, what's our favorite law. motu proprio here, Jesse? Sumorum pontificum. No. Tralis well. electitudine. Oh, yeah. God bless you. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> but that was, Sumorum pontificum was a motu proprio as well. Well, you were just talking yeah. about that a, a few weeks ago. So yeah. anyway, this one is another thing that happened that's in the news. We're so relevant these days. I love it. I find it a bit ironic that... a document that's about vernacular translations has a latin name magnum principium then let's translate it then the great principle and what it doesn't mean the great it means like the first and most like important the best principle high school know. principle that's ever been no print that's p-a-l oh. principle is your pal p-l-e p-l-e so yeah. what what is the great principle well he says the second vatican council established this principle that the liturgical prayer should be comprehensible to the people so that they could participate. And therefore, it, underst- it uh, involved all this, that what he calls the weighty task of introducing the vernacular into the Ooh, liturgy. Weighty task. It's a, it's a big deal, right? It's monium. Many, many centuries of, of Latin and all the things that Latin brought with it and the um, kind of poetic allusions and the historical associations that are all brought forward, plus the preciseness of Latin. And then all of a sudden you're just like, oh, we got to translate this into how many languages in the world? It's a, it's a huge, huge task. But the great principle that he seems to think Vatican II said, and it's in the text, is that the vernacular, the mother tongue, is helpful to the people and its, it's use should be uh, increased. And he says that the Latin church was aware of the sacrifice involved in what he calls the partial loss of liturgical Latin. Even though most of us partial. maybe have total <laughs> Just like some of my and, friends have a partial loss of hair. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Who, who are you talking oh, about? Oh, none of you guys. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, we still can have a creed or a unused day or something in Latin, so it's not gone forever, and the t- council text never really envisioned it being gone. But even that, he's saying it, it's, they knew it was a sacrifice, and Paul VI was, lamented that, in fact, uh, more than once. Um, however, they opened this door, he says, willingly, so that the uh, rites themselves could become the voice of the celebrating um, assembly, so they could divine, they could celebrate the divine liturgy. So, you know, people just think that people came in and just blew everything up like they didn't care. Paul VI specifically said it pained him to see that Latin was going to go away and this great loss would happen, but that it was the necessary thing to increase the participation of the people, therefore their transformation in grace, and therefore the transformation of the world. But... How do you do that? How do you translate all those books? It's a, it's a difficult yeah. language to translate, right? Because of the just the, the con- sentence construction does not fit well with English. Is that correct? Well, that's correct. But I, I remember I said this at one of the, the Institute's uh, Mystical Body, Mystical Voice uh, presentations. Mystical Body, oh, I'm not gonna do it. Mystical Voice. I, I object to doing any singing with you guys. I'm so, I can't. We were supposed to do that in harmony. Do it again. Mystical body, mystical voice. Discordant. Well, that's why <laughs> no. I don't do it. Yeah, okay. Anyway, it's just too much uh, pressure. Anyways, I it's, said it's it. It's a weighty task. <laughs> oh. 
I said mystical body, <laughs> mystical voice. That's the uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber version of it. All right, what did you say? That uh, we're making this point that it took the church many years to come to understand how to translate the Latin into the vernacular for the liturgy. And somebody objected, said, what do you mean? People, we've been translating Latin forever. I mean, but the point was, it's not like the translators didn't know how to work the third declension, neuter, ice stem, noun, construction. I mean, they knew the mechanics of it. What I don't they, know anything you just said, but go right. ahead. Okay, because you're not a Latin translator. <laughs> you I'm can neuter your declension and all you want. But <laughs> what we meant was, it's not simply, is Jesse, it's not simply a matter of how do we translate this from Latin into English, but how do you do it in a way, in fact, he says that, that it's be going to be elegant and profound. Right, so if you if you're teaching a Latin class and you have mm-hmm. ten students and you ask them to translate, you know, some line of Cicero or even some text of the Mass, you're going to get ten different translations, and they could all be accurate, but not all of them may be beautiful, elegant, and profound. And that's oh. what's taken a while to you know for the church to. And this is what Pope Francis mentions too. I mean, this was not an overnight thing. It it, it took some living with and struggling with. Uh, these translations to see how we can come to the right type of translation suitable for the celebration right. of the Suppose mysteries. you had a poet who who wrote in English and used a lot of English-isms, right? American English-isms. If you wanted to translate it into Spanish, you wouldn't just translate it in Spanish. You would try to preserve the American quality of it so that people can understand that author's intention. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you translate something into modern English, do you want it to be modern English or do you want it to be understandable English for the modern ear that nonetheless brings the Latin or the Latinness of the Latin church with it. So one good example I remember hearing at a conference was Latin word order can be such that you can put pretty much things anywhere in the in the order of the sentence. Verbs can be the end. And so one of the, I think it was one of the colleagues had something like, God uh, who is far from us, uh, nonetheless come close to us or something. So they put the, the God at the beginning and far from us at the end and then all the close to us in the middle. So God, <laughs> be close to us who, who is far from us. That way God and far from us were far from each other in the actual sentence. And that was a beautiful uh, kind of, I think it's called a parallelism, uh, oh. that the, the text itself actually uh, evoked the nature of the meaning, how it was written evoked the meaning of the thing. So you'll see that in, in the current Missal, there's a lot of long clauses that are in the middle. It's very long sentences. That's a Latin quality that is not modern English, but it brings the Latinness of the Roman church um, forward to our own time. It's kind of like when, when Dennis, you've talked about this in just our personal conversations, but how music sometimes the notes reflect the language that you're saying. It's is that a similar? Yeah, it's a similar idea. You want yeah. to maximize the the clarity and potency of the meaning, and so you can have a profound text and make it sound a, in a sing-songy kind of silly little mm-hmm. nursery rhyme. That doesn't make sense. It should be coordinated with the nature of the text, and so Latin could do that. And if you just say, well, we're going to make it sound like modern everyday you know, English, well, you can do it, but you might lose some of that. So the, the whole process of translation is not as easy as people think. They just say, oh, I don't know what consubstantial means, and then they just say, what's wrong with it? The great failure of the third edition <laughs> of the Missal, without often knowing the, the real complications that are involved. Mm-hmm. But this motu proprio is addressing that question. It asks and answers, well, who is in the best position to determine the suitability of a liturgical translation. Some bishops from another country than the language <laughs> you're using. Yeah. That's a joke. No, the people the, from that country. Right. right. Yeah, the bishops from that country. Yeah, right? the, the people on the ground, the, right. the, the, the bishops whose people will use these translations is generally uh, in the better position to determine this will be the most suitable translation for my people. 
Right, and that makes sense. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a Catholic school teacher, and he was saying all the some of the faculty in his department were complaining about the new translation that just Rome did everything and made us take whatever we wanted. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. There was huge, it took 10 years of consultation. There were all the English speaking bishops. There's a working committee. There, there's white book, green book, gray book, and all this stuff. And it got revised over and over and over again. So much so that people were complaining. Why does this take so long? There was so much consultation on the edition, the translation of the Missal as we have it now, that it's just ridiculous to say Rome just tells us what to do. You know, it, it was. And so huge. then Rome's like, fine, do it yourself. <laughs> I'm out of here. Be careful what you ask for. But that's what the motu proprio signifies. So so in between um, the working of the Holy See and the working of local bishops' conferences, there's kind of a shift that's taken place with this motu proprio insofar as more of the um, responsibility and accountability for these translations is going to fall with the local bishops' conferences rather than with the Holy See. But the Holy See never did translations anyway, right? They just reviewed translations that the bishop conferences or the English sort of yeah. they did some how did the, it work before and yeah. what, what is it now That's they did the some of their question. own translations so let's say uh, the Pope was going to celebrate mass in English um, it would be for the congregation to determine well what's the English translation going to be it very probably would be the missile that uh, uh, would have been used but let's say he's going to celebrate a mass in English uh, in Rome but there's English speakers from England, the United States, and Australia, and oh. the Philippines. Well, so which, which ones do they use? So occasionally they would make their own translations. But what the congregation would do previously is they would be kind of, uh, an e- I don't know if equal partner is the right way to say it, but they could have constructive criticism about this needs to be changed, that needs to be changed, this should be added. That's no longer the case, it appears, that what the congregation will do now is not be kind of a, um, just one of, the, one of the gears in the translation process. That will entirely be left to the bishops' conferences. Now, of course, that, there's two kind of possible complaints you could have, right? Oh, those pesky bureaucrats in Rome, they don't know anything about our local situation. The other possible critique is those local people don't know what they need to know about the universality of the church. So it seemed like before there's universal nature was kind of emphasized and now they're taking the local nature. They each have strengths, right? The local people know what their local needs are, but they might say, Oh, well, you know, we're just doing something that separates us from the larger universal questions. Yeah. This is a great point. So Jesse, you know what sacrosanctum concilium means? Um, the, Well, I'll just you already, say, the, listen, you already said you're not a Latin speaker, yeah. so we're not going to be. Well, okay, so concilium is council. Yeah. Okay, and sacrosanctum is like uh, sacramental council, Sa- sacred, sacred council. Okay, yeah, yeah, it means this sacred council, and it says this sacred council has four aims in view. Right. So this is before they ever really get into the liturgy at all. So what are the clown four? masses? <laughs> clown masses, bad music, ugly architecture, and selling out the paper. I knew a That's, priest who did clown masses. He had big shoes to fill when he left. No. Uh, it says it's to uh, add vigor to the Christian life. It's to strengthen the call into the church. But then these two principles, to adapt where uh, able and to uh, promote union. Right. So you have these two. These are even greater principles than this particular monium principium. These great principles is holding in attention uh, the unity of the Roman rite and the adaptability of the Roman rite. And this is just what you're speaking to, Dennis. Seems like a tough task. It is a tough task, and it's taken a very long time to figure out what is the right tension. It's a good tension, a healthy mm-hmm. tension. Sure. What Just like the tension be? between me and my wife. Is good. healthy? Healthy. And good? Sometimes. Yeah. Anyway. Or she'd say that. Yeah, probably not. Okay, well, um, 
authority is maybe shifting to Kim, just mm-hmm. like authority here is shifting <laughs> over towards uh, towards it's the bishops. Always shifting towards Kim. <laughs> always. Yeah. Yeah, so this is what Monium Principium does, is it shifts more of the authority to the local level and a little bit away from uh, the uh, the Holy See, which might represent, we would say, the universal or unity uh, element of the, the principle of the council. Right, and if you trust the Holy See, then you, you should be, theoretically, in a dialogue partnership. Hey, this is what we've done, you have any input. However, it seems that in some way we have a kind of uh, suspicion that... I guess Pope Francis, they always say, was elected to reform the Curia. Somehow the Curia, the, the Curial offices, are, are not trustworthy, and so you've got to get it back to the to the bishops. Well, that's what precise. people are afraid of. They're afraid of the the bishops getting a hold of this and then, you know, making the wrong decisions. That's the fear that comes out of this, right? Or the Vatican the bureaucrat f- getting hold of it. And See, that's the, the right flip decisions. side. It yeah. can be uh, it, whatever scenario uh, exists, you know, with heavy emphasis on Vatican approval or freedom of local bishops conferences, um, the players involved, players, the bishops involved need to be sound, faithful, informed Man, uh, this is people. like Democrats and Republicans here. Uh, well, <laughs> see, there, there's your political lens again. I know, it's, it's, I know. No, but really, it's tempting to think that oh. way, that you got the conservative uh, congregation there and the liberal, mm-hmm. you know, a particular liberal, whatever it is, but right. that, that's not how it works. Everybody needs to be, um, you know, Hopefully, doing but the right thing in these translation principles. See, but this is the this is I think one of the yet unanswered questions. Is uh, this was one of the insertions? So what 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 Monium Principium did? Yeah. What's the essential? Okay, let, yeah. Let's get now. down to it. And so he he made some changes. First of all, to the Code of Canon Law from 1983, that would have uh, uh, is it mutatis mutandis uh, other effects. What it. <laughs> By that same rationale, it would change Liturgiam Authenticam and some other um, legislation that's strictly speaking outside of the Code of Canon okay. Law. Okay, these are what the changes are. Okay, so this is, if you're following along at home, this is Canon. You lost me on Mutatis. <laughs> I'm following along right here. <laughs> Thanks. This is Canon 838, and there's three different paragraphs in Canon 838. The first one doesn't have any change, but this is what the second one uh, says. It is for the apostolic see to order the sacred liturgy of the universal church, publish liturgical books, recognize adaptations, that's the key words here, recognize adaptations approved by the local bishops' conferences, and to exercise vigilance that liturgical re- regulations are observed faithfully everywhere. All right, so an ad- what's a liturgical adaptation? Is that something, does it have to do with enculturation at all? It in does. some ways, yeah. Okay. It's, a, it's a local change that is necessary for some conventional sign, usually. So we have an adaptation in the U.S. permission to sta- to kneel at the Eucharistic prayer, for instance. Yeah, good. That's an adaptation. That's not a change of the missal, really. It's just well, it a is lo- a cha- no. It is a change to the missal, right? So you've got uh, say the the Latin typical edition wouldn't say that, but we've adapted that missal locally, right? Okay, or um, the marriage rite that uh, was recently promulgated. We have what's called uh, the lasso. And the uh, the veiling of the bride; those are not in the typical normative editions, but rather they're adaptations. All right, so those types of ritual adaptations uh, require um, a recognition, a recognitio. And what a recognitio is is that the the Holy See takes a very involved hand in giving its recognition. Okay, it's 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 a it's a, a partner in the discussion of how this will happen. It's very active. Now, up to this point, translations fell under that, right? So if you're going to translate from Latin into uh, Tagalog or mm-hmm. whatever it is, okay, 
English, um, the, the Holy See, the congregation would have that type of intimate involvement and authority in the process. Okay, that's changed, and this is in the third paragraph. It says, it pertains to local bishops' conferences to faithfully prepare versions of the liturgical books in the vernacular languages, suitably accommodated within defined limits, and to approve and publish the liturgical books for which they are responsible after the confirmation of the apostolic see. And this is the other key word. If the first one was recognition or recognitio, this one is confirmation or confirmatio. Now that's a little bit different, whereas the recognitio had a real active involvement by the Holy See. The confirmation is um, more of a, it it's kind of comes at the end, the Holy See looks at it, hasn't been really giving any input along the way, and determines that the decisions that the local bishops' conference made is confirmed. Who what do they do if it's not confirmed? Who translated uh, this motu <laughs> into English? Because yeah. I want to know if they use the right yeah. words. Okay, and so this is the third key point, is basically that question. So this is in addition to this same paragraph, that the Episcopal conferences are to faithfully prepare, which is a split infinitive, which I don't think is a good... Uh, to boldly good, go right? where no one has gone Okay, before. so fideliter is the word in there. So it specifies now that these translations are to be done faithfully and presumably according to the principles that were in liturgiam authenticum but dennis rightly asks who determines whether the translation is in fact faithful and if they decide that it isn't what what, what happens, happens? Mm-hmm. yeah i think there's still a lot of unanswered questions about yeah. the practicalities of how this is going to work right so yeah if um you know, I think how this works is a bishop's conference votes, and if they get two-thirds of the votes that approve it, it's sent <coughs> every time. Chris, the cough is back. <coughs> it's sent over to Rome. But what if, uh, you know, a third of the bishops don't think it's faithful, and they petition Rome, and they say, hey, this isn't a faithful translation, or maybe even if it were unanimous and the Holy See gets it and says, you know, this isn't, um, promultis doesn't mean for all, at least on the face of it, mm-hmm. um, and with your spi- uh, and also with you, doesn't translate et cum spiritu tuo. Is that fideliter? Is that faithful? Well, what happens then? Seems like it still relies on a Vatican bureaucrat at some level. Wouldn't it be better to have true. the input earlier rather than later? Yeah, yeah. I just, I know there's an actual change in the language here, but you still need the Vatican's input and, and interaction it just it just but it's much 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 less and later in the process and much later right so they're just reorganizing the you know the, the that department of things right where it's uh maybe you know I know, i'm trying to think of a good analogy here dennis you read student theses right mm-hmm. thesis projects now some students come to you at every step along the way. Dr. McNamara, would you please look at this, review that, give me your thoughts on this. Read chapter okay. one before I yep. start chapter two, and that's helpful and, to them. And some students come to you saying, Dr. McNamara, for me to graduate in May, I need to have this approved. Can you, uh, I know you haven't seen it yet, but uh, could you have a look at it this week? All right. Your involvement and the authority that you exercise is much different in right. both cases. And if they're really good at it, and it's a great draft, I say, hell yeah. Praise God, you graduate. But thanks, if it's not... Yeah, thanks for not bothering me for the last six months. <laughs> but Perfect. if it's not, then they've done a lot of work and they have to sort of start over. Yeah, so I don't know how it will play out. And I, I don't think um, uh, I don't think everybody does know just what, what this will mean. Or anybody does. Or either. <laughs> or both. Stop but splitting your knows? infinitives. But you know what's interesting is they're supposed to prepare these things faithfully, right? And if they do, then 
that's not a problem, right? If you write mm-hmm. a good paper, you don't have to worry about it even if you haven't gotten input along the way. And so what do you make of this? I mean, the pundits all like to say, oh, this is a rebuke of the third missile translation in English and the Vatican well, intervened yeah. too much. But you know what? I'm, I'm always amazed by how long and how much consultation there was on the missile that we have now. And this missile would have been the one that they sent to Rome. I mean, Rome had a few little, Pope Benedict had a few little things in there that he actually changed, like for many. But for the most part, this was the work of ISIL and the representatives of the English-speaking bishops of the world, and they they did it. Right? Yeah, but I, th- I think the bishops' conferences thinks think that they were really put upon by the Holy See and and you know handled about and forced to make the the translation appear such and such a way, which I don't think would would happen now. The but, av- the average person is going is to hear this podcast or read this document, and they're going to have the question: uh, When is the translation going to change again? Well, ours is done pretty much now, right? Well, yeah, yeah, but now we have a new process for this, right? right? Does that open doors for some bishops that want to change some things? Yeah, we, we heard Father uh, Andrew Mankey, who's the executive secretary for the Bishops Committee on Divine Worship for the Secretariat for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Mm-hmm. And everybody's asking him this question, what's going to happen? Are we going to redo the missile now? And I believe what he said, and this is, I think, what most people say is that, at least in terms of what, for the missile, most bishops probably aren't eager to get into the rehashing right. the missile again. But they might be, or maybe just in a limited way, maybe just some of the priest parts. It seems that the most complaints come with the, the, the collects, the prayers, and maybe the prefaces. So they, they could change those without having to change Oh, yeah, I wouldn't care. Parts. I wouldn't yeah. even know. Well, you should care, though. Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> um, but we shouldn't forget, I mean, the missile is one of... 50, 60 liturgical books. So um, there's other things in the meantime uh, that they can that they can be discussing. So. so when it comes down to it, I guess you can say you choose and trust the local people to know what they need, and then the Holy See trusts them. Or you can say the universal sort of teaching governing authority of the church likes to get involved and therefore help the locals be you know part of the universal church. They're both legitimate ways to proceed. They are. This one just happens to be a choice to proceed one way rather than another. Yeah, maybe just throw in one other thing that it, maybe it's uh, unrelated trivia, but I think it's indicative, right? So this this it, does thor- authority lie principally in Rome or principally with the bishops' conferences, mm. right? And so the council wanted to, it seemed, give more authority, rightly put, to local bishops and bishops' conferences. And um, again, maybe this is just trivia, but in John Paul II's coat of arms. It had his coat, but then it, on top of it was a papal tiara. Mm-hmm. Okay? And Pope Francis's coat of arms, he's got kind of the shield, but it's not the papal tiara above it. It's a bishop's mitre, mitre mm-hmm. okay, kind of denoting that uh, it, there's kind of a shift to uh, the bishops. Now, what did Pope Benedict's look like? Did it have the tiara it or the bishop's not. mitre? Mitre? Had the mitre. Hmm. Right, and so again, um, if, if you're tempted to read this, I guess uh, through strictly political type of uh, lenses, I mean, this is not out of step entirely with um, it seems you know the movement over the last uh, 50 years. Now mm-hmm. it could be, but um, it's not entirely. And the paragraph that you said didn't change, 838.1 says the ordering and guidance of the sacred liturgy depends solely on the authority of the church, namely that of the apostolic see. So keep going. 
And as provided by law, that of the diocesan bishop, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's an important point right. too, because people thought, well, what authority does a bishop's conference gotcha. have? It's or really, an individual it's bishop, really the right? bi- it's really the bishop who does. But the apostolic see yeah, determines exactly. what authority each individual Whoa. bishop has. Yeah, gotcha. So uh, you know, when you when you have the mayor, they have a certain authority, but the governor has more, and the president has more, and so everybody does each the part they're supposed to play and nothing that's true more. because yeah. they even gave the authority to make it so in the first place wow i yeah. love that well go. but again the takeaway line as long as everybody does his job do fidelity job do your job we don't have any problems right if the bishops make a beautiful wonderful liturgical translation great and no the reality is the one thing to take away is no matter how the church decides to do this process it will make many people angry so <laughs> But God's still in charge. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just trust the Holy Spirit, right? So, speaking of trusting the Holy Spirit, should we trust the Holy Spirit to guide us to answer another liturgy question? It's the only way we'll get it right. Yeah, I think so. Or we could just take a stab at it and see if we get it right. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I wanna warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Somebody named something. Brad? Is it's there some... a Brad? I'm I like, my psychic powers. That's something else you're feeling, I think. All right, this question is from Brad, for sure. Oh, Brad. See? Yeah. I knew. I knew it was um, Brad. Hey, Brad. Brad is referencing a episode that we did called Shirley Temple. And it was about different elements that you'll see in a, in a church. Tour guide cheat sheet. Yep. And he says, y'all went over the seven. He said, y'all. This so we know the, he's from the South. Hmm? Brad from the South. Hmm. He could be, uh, I don't know where he's from. The y'all south. went over the seven elements of the church, of a church, and how they relate to scripture, the heavenly reality, etc. One of them being columns. If my local church does not have columns, or if a church does not have one of the seven elements that y'all went over, what does that mean? It probably means y'all have a... No, I don't know. (laughs) What does it mean, Dennis? Well, I picked out seven things that are commonly found in churches that grow out of the scriptural and sacramental tradition. It doesn't mean every church has to have every one of those things, but if it does, it's just a higher participation in significant things. So you can have a church with no columns at all, and it still be a credible church. You can still think of the church as made of many parts or assembled from living stones. It's going to be made of bricks or stones or steel or tiles or wooden beams or whatever. All of those members can represent the mystical body assembled. Columns are just a particularly good way to do that because they have all the acquired meanings and the different types and the notion of columns as pillars of the church. But you don't have to have them. It's just an extra good, fuller participation. It's sort of like baptism. You know, you can get baptized with three drops of water on the forehead or you can get dunked in 10,000 gallons and held down until you can't breathe and think you're going to mm-hmm. die. And then you rise again, you know, gasping for life and all that. So you can have a fullness of expression. And Wait, am, am my kid supposed to almost die? I wouldn't do that to anybody under yeah, the age of geez. reason, certainly. Um, but you can have a fullness of expression or a kind of minimum necessity. They're both legit. They're both licit, but one has a, a fuller expression. So it's not that the church is bad. It just means that it's not as full as it might be otherwise. 
It's just not good. No, it's not as good as it could be. Well, there's always, full. there's always a proper time and a place. So if you have a, a monastic chapel for monks who take extreme vows of simplicity, they might not have columns. Mm-hmm. And you can do certain things too, where you can take out the column and just have the capital. Sometimes you see that on the walls. So it's kind of clever usage of, of things like that. So there's a fittingness and depends if it, if it needs it or if it doesn't, but it doesn't have to have all of them. Just the more it has, the more you have to encounter, but sometimes it's okay not to have one of the elements we talked about was an altar it should have an altar well an altar is uh the church (laughs) building exists for the altar not the altar for the church so you definitely need the altar you need christ standing amidst his people nice all right uh was brad sorry i forgot your name brad brad i hope that answers your question and if you have a question for the liturgy guys you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com thank you and god bless good job chris you're so good I just wanted to make sure people thought that you were here. I'm here. Prove it. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.